Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Technology Watch. Now there's one topic that always seems to come up whenever some new technology comes into being. It's a depressing topic and that is the topic around people losing their jobs to technology. And never before has there been a time like today when technology is moving so fast, when artificial intelligence is growing in leaps and bounds and the fear among people, and I'm not just talking about lay people, I'm talking about even professionals, experts in the field, media experts, journalists, all raise the same concern. Will technology replace jobs? Will artificial intelligence replace human beings in their jobs? Now, this is a very valid question. It's a very important question. All through history, we find that whenever new technology came into being, people did, in fact, lose their jobs. Technology came in, replaced people, and people had to move on to other things. Taking, for example, in the oldest days when people used to physically work in the fields, they used to plow the fields, they used to plant the seeds, they used to harvest the crops, water the crops, you name it. Every single aspect of managing a farm in the old days used to be a manual process. Today you've got machines doing all that. This is because around about towards the end of the 19th century, you got the Industrial Revolution that kicked in and lots and lots of new different types of machines actually came into existence and those machines replaced people. But the question remains that will there come a time when there'll be no jobs left? And this is what people generally tend to fear and uh, lots, of, lots of journalists, lots of media actually add fuel to the fire about this topic by making people more afraid, by predicting a time when robots and computers will take over all jobs and there will be nothing left for humans to do. Now, this is what we're going to discuss today. We're going to discuss this viewpoint and we're going to see if there's any validity in this viewpoint that there'll be a time when humans will absolutely have no jobs left to do. But before we go there, we're going to look at a couple of technologies that have made people obsolete in the not-so-distant past. The one example, and this is one of the truly, uh, truly remarkable examples. Yes, there is the downside that people have lost their jobs, but when you look at this technology, you will have no option but to be totally, totally amazed by what is going on. And the technology I'm talking about is the Amazon Go concept stores. Now, here's a picture for you. Imagine a shop that doesn't have a single employee and doesn't even have cashiers. And this is what Masula is going to tell us about today. These Amazon stores, Masula, tell us about them. What goes on? How does a store operate without cashiers? Won't there be large-scale stealing taking place? So the Amazon Go concept store is the first of its kind in the world. And the first one was opened in Seattle in America. 
Now, like you said, this store has no cashiers at all and, and they have very limited staff. So imagine this. You download an app on your phone. As soon as you enter the shop, you scan your, your app or barcode on your app and immediately the store starts to track you. So the app is tracking all of your movements. There are cameras on the ceiling that track where you are going and which uh, aisles you are visiting. Whenever you pick up something from a shelf, there's small um, scales that will detect any movement. And as soon as you pick something up, it's added to your virtual cart. So basically, let's 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 uh, take it from the top. You 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 enter the store and you got a unique barcode. So the store becomes aware that you've entered. Amazing. So it recognizes you. That's correct. And it also, well, through the app, will recognize your family members as well through the Amazon app. Wow. And uh, when you when you remove something from the from the shelf. How does the store know that you've taken something off the shelf? Cool. So there is a, a scale on every underneath every item in the shelf. And as soon as you take it out, it's immediately added to your virtual cart in the Amazon app. And once you put it back, it detects that you've put it back and it removes it from the cart. Sweet. So that, that uh, app basically is keeping track of your movements around the store and also your, your purchases. Correct. And there is also some deep learning and AI. Now, we've seen Amazon uh, experiment with AI with its Alexa. And what this will do is, as things, uh, while, while your home is connected to a smart hub, as things get finished in your home, a Amazon app, the Amazon app or Alexa will remind you to buy things. And the next time you are in the shop, it will recommend these things to you. Wow. So AI stands for what? Uh, artificial intelligence. So artificial intelligence. I think we need to do a an episode on artificial intelligence because a lot of people don't actually know what artificial intelligence is. It's actually machines that are able to think and make decisions for us, right? Correct. Okay. Now tell us about payment. How does one pay when there's no cashiers in the in the store? Simple. You just pick your items and you walk out of the store, and the app that was keeping track of all of your items will charge it automatically to your credit card. Wow, so it detects that you've left the store. Correct. And then it simply does a total and it sends the the bill to your credit card and then you get a notification that uh, your payment has gone through. Is that how it works? Exactly. It's like shopping online. It, it works in the exact same way. You know, the whole concept is, is a bit disconcerting. I mean, walking into a store where there's no one, where there's no cashiers. You know, I'd, I'd love it because for me, going into a supermarket and buying something is irritating for one reason only. And that is standing in queues at the cashiers. Uh, you know, not having those cashiers will be really cool. But, you know, it takes, I guess it takes a bit of getting used to. I mean, you just walk into a store, scan your phone, pick up stuff and walk out. It's not something that, that we're used to, but I guess it's something that we're going to get used to because it's become a reality in the United States. And I believe that there's there's uh, similar stores opening up uh, elsewhere in the United States. There's other countries, I think, well, there's other companies rather. I think uh, Walgreens is also launching uh, a similar cashierless store. And I also believe there's a couple of uh, cashierless stores opening up in the UK and in other cities, in other countries in uh, in Europe. So it's just a matter of time 
before we get that here in South Africa. But I don't know with our petty crime rates whether it's going to become practical or not. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it'll work, but there'll be a higher level of security uh, applied in, uh, in, in those kinds of uh, stores. But whichever way you look at it, I mean, truly, truly remarkable. I mean, you've got tracking technology, you've got artificial intelligence. And my favorite is the part where the app actually recommends to you what you need to buy. But how does it know that? How does it know that you've run out of cheese, for example? Well, there's two ways. One is it because of the artificial intelligence and machine learning, it knows when you how frequently you buy milk or how frequently you buy cheese. And it's going to recommend based on that. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. And there's also like Samsung smart fridges, which keep track of, of what's in your fridge. And that's another way that it, it, it'll track what you need. Okay. So smart fridge talks to smartphone, talks to app, talks to smart store. And in that way, your whole life is tracked. That's, a, that's interesting. It might seem creepy to some people. For me, I see convenience right there because... I forget stuff. I'll go into a store to buy 12 things that my wife gives me, uh, you know, a list of. And I'll probably, if I'm lucky, I'll come away with seven or eight of those items. And as far as the, the, the rest of them, well, I'll just have to get a shouting for that. Okay, so as great as the Amazon stores are, they did cause some protests. And there were people protesting around cashier jobs. And this is a relevant protest because there's no cashiers in the store. So there'll be no people, no jobs for people who are skilled cashiers. And think about a scenario where every supermarket in the world changes to this. What will happen? Cashiers will ex will become extinct. There'll be no jobs left for them. And then we're going to get hundreds, if not thousands of people without jobs. Now, what do we do about this scenario? Is this a relevant Protest is this something that people should be actually protesting about. Now, here's a thought. Around about the, the late 19th century, there was this Frenchman by the name of Jacquard who invented a loom. Now, the loom is actually a machine that takes the, the cotton buds that they pull out of the, the, the plant and, and converts it into the cotton that we are used to seeing, that we buy from, from a store. So previously, this was an extremely manual process. You used to have these people sitting around and uh, twisting that cotton between their forefinger and their thumb and twining them together. And it used to take hours, if not days and days and days to get a single uh, reel of cotton. But along comes this guy and invents this, this loom machine that, that uh, does, does all of this automatically and also uh, weaves the fabric together uh, into cloth. Now, what happened there was that these people started to protest. In fact, some of them uh, became a bit violent. They started going to factories that had looms and uh, they started destroying these these looms and the protest was about job losses they felt that all the loom workers in the country were going to lose their jobs so hence these machines were bad they were evil and they were going to cause misery to lots of people and that was true in a way the 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 this machine would do the job of a number of people and in much quicker time than uh, than a human uh, human being would do and 
not only that, but a better quality uh, of work would be produced by these looms. So the question arose, it was a moral dilemma. Do we step into the world of technological advancements? Do we give that preference or do we give preference to people who may lose their jobs? Naturally, it wasn't the factory workers or the factory owners that made the decision ultimately. You know who it was? It was the consumer. The consumer is the one that made the decision. And the decision, as we know, looking back in history, was that the loom workers went extinct. And the loom continued and the loom thrived until today. Now, why did the consumers make such a decision? Simple. It all has to do with convenience and economics. Let me explain. When the loom came into existence, people started to get cheaper clothing at, well, they started to get better quality clothing much cheaper. So the poor and the common folk could now start to dress like the rich people. So the poor man was dressing in quality of clothing that the king would normally be accustomed to. Now, who wouldn't opt for this? You're getting clothing that's much better, much better quality, much more comfortable to wear, but at a fraction of the price. Now, you didn't have excessive manual labor in, uh, involved in every step of the process, plucking the cotton buds, converting that into strands, uh, weaving the cloth out of that, and so forth and so on. So now... We had a trade-off here. The trade-off was, should the general public be concerned about the handful of loom workers or should they look to the future where people would be able to buy cheaper clothes or better quality clothes at a cheaper price? And obviously, if you and I are in the exact same scenario, what are we going to opt for? We're going to opt for cost efficiency. We're going to opt for convenience. We're going to opt for price over anything else. Let me give you another example. The other example is internet banking. Now, internet banking has transformed our lives. It has transformed our businesses in ways that we cannot ever imagine a life without it. I mean, you can sit anywhere. You can be in a car, you can be in a train, in a bus, in a plane. You can be in another country and you can do all of your banking. You can transfer funds, you can pay people, you can uh, start or you can open up an account also all using your computer, your tablet, PC or your cell phone. This is amazing convenience for us. Now, the question is, did we not realize that when internet banking came into existence, so many tellers would have lost their jobs. And they did. Lots and lots of banks didn't need as many branches anymore, so they downsized. By downsizing, what did they do? They closed down branches or they took bigger, large branches and they downsized them into smaller branches and they laid off dozens and dozens of tellers because there was just no more need for tellers anymore. Now, that's a moral dilemma for us. The question ar arises that who do we give preference to? Do we give preference to ourselves? Do we prefer the convenience, the security, 
the safety of doing internet banking in our own homes, in our own businesses, in our own offices and institutes? Or do we give preference to the bank tellers, the poor bank tellers that are going to lose their jobs? Now, obviously, and again, history bears testimony to this, that we didn't give a second thought to the bank tellers because we all dived into internet banking. We all jumped into it. We all enjoyed. We all uh, take extreme uh, uh, pleasure in, in doing our banking uh, on our cell phones rather than having to step out of our homes and offices and going to a bank, standing in a queue, uh, facing whatever security issues there may be and doing our banking at a teller. No one, given the opportunity, would opt for going to a bank and doing the banking at a teller. Unless, of course, you have physical money that you need to deposit. That's a different thing altogether. But where you're doing general transfer of funds and your general banking, then obviously all of us are going to opt for doing our banking in the way that's most convenient to us. So that's what happened in the days of the Jacquard loom. The public, the general consumer, found cost effectiveness, they found quality, and they opted for that. So it wasn't the technology, it wasn't the looms that put the loom workers out of, uh, the, 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 the fabric weavers out of jobs. It wasn't that. It was economics. It was the fact that people could get cheaper, better quality clothes for cheaper. And in the same way, around the, the late 20th century, it wasn't internet banking that put people out of business. It wasn't internet banking that made tellers lose their jobs. It was us. It was us, the general average consumer. We found convenience. We found safety. We found cost effectiveness. And we went for that. And that is what put these people out of a job. It wasn't anything else. In the same way, there's so many different industries that are being radically transformed. I mean, today, retail has moved onto the Internet. It's not so prevalent in South Africa, but in other countries, it's a big thing. Amazon came from nowhere and is now one of the biggest retail uh, companies in the world. Why? Because people are better off doing their shopping from their own desks. You can do your shopping from your, your office desk. You can do it from your shop, from your home, from your, from your institute, wherever you are. You can do it on the move. As long as you've got an internet connection, you can buy stuff and it will be shipped to you. Fantastic, super convenient. And because Amazon cut out the middlemen, prices are even more realistic. Amazon sources out these items right at the very source in the factories. Now, you can't beat convenience and pricing like this. So it's this concept of the online store that's replacing the physical brick and mortar stores. So the, the, the ultimate conclusion is that it's not technology that replaces these people or takes away jobs. It is the convenience, it's economics, it's the general consumer. It's what they opt for. Now, as far as people losing their jobs, what happened to the loom workers? If you go back to the late 19th century, what do we see? We see that there is a system at play. These people went into other professions and they survived. And not only did they survive, but with industrialization, not just in the fabric industry, in pretty much every industry, including, uh, including agriculture, technology replaced people, but people moved on to other things.
So the population of the planet between the, the late 19th century and today doubled and tripled and quadrupled. Now there's a lot more people on the planet than there ever was. But everybody is finding something to do. There is, except with a handful of a percent of the population that's unemployed, generally we find that even though the population is growing, there's always something for everybody to do. There's always professions that are coming up that people are getting into. So this brings us back to the spiritual aspect of jobs, work, business, professions. It's simple. That every person is born with their own risk. Every person is born and Allah Ta'ala looks after people. He's creating people, he's putting them into the world and he will always look after. So what we're going to do is, we've run out of time actually. What I'd like to do is to talk about careers of the future. What careers people should actually be getting into. Let's pick that up in, a, in another uh, episode, Masila. Perfect. I think that's, that's a lovely topic. Fantastic. So for today, it's a wrap. This is Technology Watch. I'm Bilal Katrada. And I'm Masihullah Katrada. And we hope to catch our users next time. You are listening to Marquez Sahaba, the voice of Ahlul Sunnah wal This is the amazing beauty of creation. I'm Bilal Katrada. And I'm Talha Katrada. And this is the show that brings you up close with the universe around you. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the amazing beauty of creation. I'm Bilal Katrada. And I'm Talha Katrada. And after today's episode, you might think twice about going near the beach again. Today we're going to talk about those mean, menacing predators of the ocean, the great white sharks. Now the great white shark, I can define as one thing. It's one giant muscle with teeth that's designed for only one thing, and that is to kill and to eat. Now today we're going to talk about these creatures because besides the fact that they are vicious killers and besides the fact that they are, uh, that they are absolutely fearful, they also are an amazing, amazing marvel of creation. The way the sharks have been created and the way they have been adapted for their specific purpose in life is really, really amazing. So once we get over that fear that we have of sharks and we start understanding their bodies and how they operate and how they function, then we'll have a new appreciation for them. So let's get right into it. Tala, tell us the great white shark. Give us some interesting facts about them. Okay, so the great white shark is the largest predatory fish in the world. Now, by predatory fish, I mean that it, it has big teeth and it actively hunts and kills its prey. Although the biggest fish in the ocean will be the whale shark, but the whale shark isn't a, a predator, it isn't a hunter, it's a filter feeder. So what's a filter feeder do? Now, filter feeders, they... Although they're huge, like whales, they, they have these huge mouths that they open and they swim through the water. And then they have either in their gills or in their, in, in, instead of their teeth, they have like these, these broom strands. And these broom strands will sweep through the water and collect small little creatures like, like shrimps and krill. And then, uh, they'll take out all the water and swallow those creatures. I see. So that's filter feeders. 
All right. So uh, you're saying the the shark, the whales. Well, a lot of the whales are actually filter feeders, right? Most whales are. All right. Now, the average great white shark, uh, the adult great white shark, measures between 4.3 and 4.6 meters and weighs between uh, 520 and 770 kgs. Now, that's uh, longer than, than a car. That's longer huge. than a family car. And it's it's quite heavy for a living creature as well. But remember, in the ocean, because they don't have to support that weight constantly, these creatures can easily uh, grow to those sizes. But the thing is, that's just the average great white shark. It's nowhere close to the biggest on record. One of the biggest great white sharks ever recorded on video was a female named Deep Blue. She was nicknamed Deep Blue. She was first filmed in 2014, and she was estimated to measure 6.1 meters long. Wow, that is huge. Now, how big is that? Give us some some context with that. Uh, That is about half the size of a bus. About two cars? Almost two cars. It's a long, long shark. That is one big shark. I wonder how big its mouth is. Now, being such a big predator, great white sharks have no natural predators in the wild, except occasionally killer whales. But that's very rare. Uh, On very rare cases, killer whales actually attack and kill sharks. Most of the time, uh, great white sharks sit right at the top of the food chain. And Great white sharks grow to these enormous sizes because they never stop growing. Along with a lot of other sharks and even species of snakes, they never stop growing until they die. Although once they reach maturity, the rate at which they grow uh, drastically slows down, but they keep growing a couple centimeters every year. So the older a shark gets, the The bigger it it will be. So because of her size, they estimate Deep Blue, the, the largest great white shark caught on camera, to be around 50 years old. But the thing is, the lifespan of a great white shark is estimated to be close to 70 years old. So that means Deep Blue will still grow at least a couple of meters before she dies. And there could be a bigger, older great white shark that just hasn't been discovered yet swimming around the ocean. Like maybe in the Mariana Trench, for example. Potentially. So, there have been numerous reports of of bigger sharks uh, other than deep blue. Uh, Some upwards of 7 meters long, but they have never actually been uh, proven or confirmed. Mm. That is huge. I mean, maybe some of those could be attributed to just rumors that never existed, but... It could be that some of those were actual facts and they are seven meter long great white sharks roaming around the ocean. It's scary to think that there's seven meter predators, vicious predators that are lurking in the water somewhere. I mean, at seven meters, I can only imagine how huge its mouth must be. I think maybe a, a, a smallish human being will just be swallowed. You won't even be a muscle for that thing. Now, being a big predator, you need big teeth. And the great white shark has huge teeth. The biggest recorded great white shark 
tooth measured 7.5 centimeters long. So if you look at your hand, that's roughly around the length of your index finger. That's a huge tooth. Now, sharks, when they grow their teeth, they grow it in, in rows. So they don't just have one set at the bottom and one set at the top like we do. They have one set, and behind that they'll have another, and behind that another, and another. And in total, a great white shark in all of these rows can have up to 300 teeth in its mouth at one time. Why, why does it need so many teeth? So, because sharks, their teeth do not have roots like our teeth do. So they easily fall off and can be replaced. So those, a shark only uses the teeth in its front two rows of its mouth. So that will uh, come to about 50 teeth. Okay, so the the shark clamping down on a on a creature, right? Uh, from from what I understand, I think I've read this somewhere that shark's teeth are pointed backwards towards the inside of its mouth. So I'm trying to picture a shark biting something. So it grips something with its teeth, and that's the front two rows of teeth that are actually gripping that. And there's no no chance of escaping because I mean you've got these 7.5 centimeter uh, uh, huge teeth that are just clamping down. The poor creature will be just stuck there. It won't be able to uh, uh, wiggle its way out of there. Now, if if it's a bigger prey that the great white shark I- is biting into, it'll often thrash about and try to get free. And in doing so, although it might not escape all of the time, it could potentially knock out one or two of a great white's teeth. A great white shark, on average, loses about two teeth a week. Hmm. Okay. Now, whenever a great white shark loses one of its teeth, a tooth from one of the previous rows will sort of roll forward and take its place. Wow, that is amazing. So the skin in the shark's mouth kind of acts like a conveyor belt that carries teeth from the lower rows to replace the ones that fall off or get damaged from the higher rows. That is amazing. Now, if you look at this, you see the beauty of Allah Ta'ala's creation here. You see the wisdom of his creation and you see the brilliance of his design here because think about it like this right a land predator take a lion for example the lion will grip its prey not with its mouth but with its claws that's the first first thing it'll 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 catch the prey with its claws and then bite it and it'll hold the creature down with its own weight and and bite that 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 creature so there's there's not as much pressure on the on the teeth. If the lion had to hunt entirely using its teeth, it would also lose a lot of teeth. And within a couple of years, it won't have any teeth at all and it'll be a completely useless predator because it's only got gums left and no teeth. But if you think about a shark, the shark doesn't have arms, it doesn't have claws, and it doesn't have anything with which to hold its prey. The only thing it's got is that mouth. So, hence, the dual rows of teeth to ensure that the prey doesn't escape and also the replaceable teeth. Now, if it's only source of holding, the only way to hold that prey is with the teeth, it's only natural to assume that that uh, those teeth will come off regularly. And the fact that the teeth don't have roots, meaning that if the shark does lose teeth, it's not a painful thing like us if we have to lose teeth because our teeth are plugged into our skulls, but the shark's teeth are just almost just placed there. So if the teeth tooth comes off, 
it would be something like for us a hair falling off. It's a painless thing. So the shark will lose that tooth and replace it. But tell me, do do sharks have an uh, infinite amount of teeth? Sharks never ever run out of teeth. They just keep producing more and more as older uh, and bro- damaged teeth fall off. So the average great white shark can go through more than 30,000 teeth in their lifetime. Oh, wow. Now, this is the average great white shark that lives to about 30 years old. But naturally, the longer a shark lives, the more teeth it will go through. And a shark as old as Deep Blue could have easily gone through 50,000 teeth by now. 50,000 teeth. That's a lot of teeth. Now, tell us something about the biting force. I mean, you've got these big teeth. You've got this mechanism where the teeth can be replaced. How much of pressure does that do those teeth put? Because, I mean, one is having sharp teeth. The other is, you know, having that kind of biting pressure. What, what can you tell us about that? Now, in, in 2008, the scientists using 3D scans and computer models of, of great white sharks, they estimated the strength of its jaw muscles and est- using that, they estimated its bite force. And the great white shark's bite force is thought to be somewhere around 1.8 tons per square inch. That is mind-boggling. So that means for every square inch uh, of the shark's jaw, there's like someone placing a 4x4 van on top of you. Okay, so I'm trying to picture this, right? I'm trying to picture what you're saying. So imagine these row of teeth lined up, and above each tooth there is a 4x4 bucky pushing it down, the weight of the 4x4. And with that force, the shark is biting its prey. Have I got this right? Yeah, so it's, it's basically like, okay, let's, let's just take a, a watermelon. Uh, just So we take a watermelon, we place it on a table. You take a sword and you place it on top of that watermelon. And then you place, on for every square inch of that blade, you place a 4x4 four four bucky. That watermelon is history. And that, that's the force of which a great white shark bites. So wow. when it bites, it's c- going through flesh, it's crunching through bone. There's nothing stopping those jaws from closing down. Mm, there's some strong muscles there. There's one more feature. Besides its enormous teeth and that, that crushing bite force, there's another feature that I'd like to talk about that makes great white sharks such formidable predators in their environments. You see, most fish are cold-blooded animals. So they're not like mammals that can regulate their, their body temperatures. They need external forces like the sun to, to heat them up. So this is why that um, fish are found largely concentrated in warmer tropical areas like, like reefs. And fish that you do get living further away from those areas, especially in the, in the deeper, colder waters, they very s- have very slow down metabolisms and they move very slowly through the water. However, when you look at the great white shark, it not only lives in these cold waters, but it's also an extremely fast and active predator that's constantly on the hunt for for prey. So how does a fish manage to live in these cold temperatures and be a fast, active hunter with such a high metabolism? 
Well, this is uh, this is possible through an ingenious design mechanism uh, in the shark's body. You see, on either side of a shark's spine, they have these huge muscles that run almost the entire length of the shark's body. Now, these muscles power the shark's tail. Now, remember, it's a very big shark, and moving through water requires a lot of energy or a lot of strength. So, those muscles are extremely strong, and they power the tail of the shark. Now, with any muscle in any creature, as it moves, as the muscle moves, it generates a little bit of heat. Okay, so you take a run or you do a workout, then you feel your and muscles, and you feel warmer. Okay. Now, with mo- this happens for all fish, but with most species of fish, this heat is not really conserved and is lost to the surrounding waters. Okay. But sharks have a way of maintaining that heat. So, they have these veins that don't carry the heat away from the, those muscles, but they rather circulate that heat and carry that heat back towards the muscle to keep their whole central part of their body warm and enables them to maintain a body temperature about 18 degrees above the surrounding water. So what you're saying is these muscles, because they're so big and they're so active, they're generating heat all the time, right? So the veins are basically wrapped around these muscles and the blood passes through those veins. And as the blood is passing through those veins, they get warmed up by the muscles. Is that how it works? Very similar. And another thing that they do is, picture this. There's one stream of veins going towards the muscle and one stream of veins going away from the muscles. Now, the veins coming towards the muscle have cold blood inside them. And the veins coming away from the the muscle have warm blood. Okay. Now, instead of that heat being transferred away towards, say, the surface of the shark's skin where it will make contact with the water and get cooled off, the heat from that warm uh, vein transfers to the cold vein. And then that cold vein pumps towards the muscle. So that heat is constantly being sent from the warm veins to the cold veins and back towards the muscle. And that conserves that heat and makes sure that the shark can maintain that higher bodily temperature so it can actively uh, hunt. That is that is some advanced technology right there. I mean, if you think about how um, we generate electricity from, uh, say, the sun or from geothermal power, it's on a very similar principle. We got the, 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 the heat from these heat sources warming up water and that water turns into steam and that steam is used to generate electricity. Now, in the shark, what you're saying is that the motion energy is being converted into heat, which is then used to warm its blood, which is necessary to keep it alive and active in its environment. This is amazing. I mean, I, I, I haven't... I haven't ever come across anything like that. I mean, we are warm-blooded creatures, right? Our body generates heat, but the shark doesn't actually generate heat. But Allah Ta'ala has equipped it with a way to keep its blood warm and to keep its body warm so it can live in in uh, cold, frigid waters. That is amazing. You know, when we talk about the beauty of, of creation, when we talk about the amazing 
designs of these creatures, we can understand Allah Ta'ala's wisdom, you can understand His might, you can understand His brilliance, you can understand His greatness. Because, I mean, it's, it's impossible for human beings to, to even conceive that there's some cold water, there's going to be a creature living in there, that creature is going to need uh, certain adaptations, it's going to need teeth of a certain type, it's going to need muscles of a certain size and type, it's going to be able to uh, live in that water and not freeze to death and not, or, or not become sluggish because of the cold. Because if it became sluggish, it won't be much of a predator. Its prey will just outrun it. So imagine the slow motion shark trying to go and catch a fish. It's just not going to work. And the shark will, will become extinct within a couple of uh, weeks, not even days, within weeks. It will, not even months, but weeks. So Allah Ta'ala knew in His wisdom He's going to make this creature and it's going to live in the ocean and it's going to need these adaptations. And so He gave it these adaptations. But also the other thing we, we can marvel about is the people that actually take the time to go and study these creatures and understand their inner workings, understand their physiology and how all of these mechanisms work. We can really uh, tip our hats to them. They really have uh, you know, informed us and educated us on so many aspects that we otherwise wouldn't have known about. And that's why I feel, and this is my personal belief, that more Muslims should get into studying biology, into studying molecular biology, biotechnology, because it's our responsibility from the Qur'an. Allah Ta'ala is telling us in the Qur'an, go and study the creation and marvel at the creation and get a, a better uh, appreciation of your Creator through your studies of the, uh, His creation. You cannot see Him but you can see the amazing things that he created. Anyways, we're out of time, and uh, the time really flies when, we, when we're having fun, as the old saying goes. I sincerely hope that our listeners enjoyed and uh, were educated by this episode as much as we were. This is The Amazing Beauty of Creation. I'm Bilal Katrada. And I'm Talha Katrada. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and on Twitter, at AB of Creation, to give us feedback on our podcast, and let us know if there's anything specific you'd like us to discuss in a future episode.